0: We're looking this morning at the joy of Christian community. Our text is 1 Corinthians chapter one. And I direct your attention firstly to Paul's appreciation for the church at Corinth. So that's the first point. Paul's appreciation for the church at Corinth. Look at verse four. I always thank God for you because of His grace given you in Christ Jesus. Have you ever said to to someone, you know, I'm just so thankful for you. Maybe uh, that person helped you through a difficult time in your life by being there as a friend when everyone else seemed to have disappeared. Or maybe you just appreciated the way a person used his or her skills in a good and helpful way. You like their talent, you like their expertise, their effort. And you say something to them like, I'm thankful to know you. I'm thankful to know you. It's good for us to be people who can recognize and appreciate the benefit of other people's lives as they interact with our own. Sometimes we're too self-absorbed and we cannot see beyond our own problems. And this may sour the benefit others have with regard to us. But all of this being true, I want you to observe how Paul expresses his appreciation of the Corinthian church. He does not say, I'm so thankful for you, which is likely the way you and I would would phrase it. Rather he says I am so thankful or I thank God for you and then he states the reason because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. In other words he's not just thanking them for being themselves he's thanking them for He's thankful for them for what God has done in and through them. In verse five and following he says, for in Him you have been enriched in every way. In verse six, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. And then in verses seven through nine, Paul rehearses the mercies of God to the Corinthians and what effects they have had on them and continue to have on them. So, what we are observing here is that Paul's appreciation of the Corinthian believers was not accolades for who and what they were by their own ingenuity and prowess, but for what they had become by the molding and shaping and intervention of God into their lives. They had been seeped in idolatry, as you know. But they had now come to worship the only God there is because grace was given them in Christ Jesus, verse 4. Something was given to them that they didn't have before. This theme is carried on when Paul gets to chapter 4 and verse 7. And he records it this way. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? That's kind of a sweeping statement, isn't it? What do you have that you did not receive? He goes on. And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. You see, one of the huge life-dominating sins of the Corinthian church was pride. In time, they even challenged Paul's authority as an apostle to instruct them and to correct their wrong thinking. Yet it was Paul who first preached the gospel to them, Apart from whom they would have never come to know God, humanly speaking. And that is my point now, that the reason Paul was appreciative of the Corinthians was because God had invaded their lives with His grace. If there was anything that inflamed Paul's heart, it was to see God transform pagans into God-fearing, obedient servants of Jesus Christ. Boy, that just set his heart on fire. And since salvation is of God's doing from start to finish, and it's not by man's efforts, not even by his prayers and the like, the thanks goes to God. We need to keep this in mind as we think of the Christian community and the people who touch our lives. All of us are sinners saved by grace. We use that phrase. Well, if it's by grace, we didn't earn it through our own goodness. And grace means we didn't deserve it more than any other. The choice was God's and God's alone. Grace means gift and gift means received, not wages or compensation for work done. It's actually worded that way in Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Why? The gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. That's why. That's why. So, can you appreciate this work of grace in other people, the people of your Christian community? This is reasonable to expect. Despite all of the variations in our backgrounds and the circumstances by which we came into the same church family, we are all here by God's doing, not our own. The church is not a fraternity. We do not choose to join it on the basis of common interests and desires. We are drawn into God's family by His Spirit on the merit of Jesus Christ who is our head. Verse 6 says that the Corinthians were enriched in every way. And we ask, obviously, what way? He answers, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge. If you look across the column there in your Bible to chapter 2, you will discover God's analysis of the person that is devoid of His Spirit He says in verse 14, the man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned or understood. By way of contrast, Paul says, chapter two, verse seven, We speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God has destined for our glory before time. Verse 10, but God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. God has revealed it. Oh, revealed it to us by His Spirit. So you see, there's the source of wisdom. There's the source of wisdom of knowledge. It's not innate. It isn't, well, I believe in God. Everybody believes in God. No, they don't. And if they advocate that, they don't believe in the God of the Bible. The Spirit of God reveals to us who and what God is using His Word. And what about the speech? Knowledge, yeah, speech. Well, likewise, when we consider speech, listen to Paul again. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 4 and 5. My message, okay, that's the knowledge, and my preaching, ah, there we are, there's the speech. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. He comes back to that point in verse 7 and following. We speak of God's sacred wisdom. Secret wisdom. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So he's making a distinction here. We're different in our knowledge, what we know, and we're different in how we speak. So as to both knowledge speech, what we know and what we say. God through His Spirit teaches us through His Word the truth about eternal things and enables us to reiterate those things to others. And it's not like any other subject to be learned. Wherein a person can just read a text, you say, here, here, read this, and learn. You can hand them a Bible and say, read this and learn. But without the Spirit intervening in their lives, they will read and not learn. They will read and say, that's foolishness. They will read and have no discernment, no understanding. I've actually done this with unbelievers. I've taken my Bible, opened it to a certain text of Scripture, maybe a text in one of the Gospels, which you would think is pretty simple. Hand it to them, say, read that verse, they read that verse, and then I say, what did that verse say? And they will come up with the most fanciful, outer space, sci-fi explanation that defies all logic. They don't have the Spirit of God to understand the meaning. They can read the words, yes, but I'm not talking about, can you read English? I'm talking about, what does the text say? What is it teaching? That they can't grasp. So we are really blessed when we can say with Paul that we have the knowledge of God. From Paul's ministry, we know that he confronted the intellectuals of his day. Mars Hill in Athens, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. In our text, chapter 2, verse 8, the rulers of this age, but rulers and all, though educated and influential in worldly knowledge, he said to them, none of the rulers of this age understood it. Understood what? The gospel. Now they heard it because he was out there preaching it and so were the other apostles. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying they didn't get it. They didn't uh, hear it. He said they didn't understand it. If they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Just think about some of the big shots concerning Jesus' crucifixion. King Herod. You think he was a slouch intellectually? King Herod. Governor Pontius Pilate, even the religious rulers, Caiaphas, the high priests, the Pharisees, the scribes. None of them recognized Jesus as God's Son, the promised Savior of sinners. The evidence was clear. Clear enough, I might say, that a little child could believe in and accept Christ for who and what He said about Himself. In fact, Jesus said to His own disciples, you must become like little children in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you must humble yourself and you become uh, self-deprecating in that sense. You don't think of yourselves as the big shot you think you are. So if it was clear enough for children to understand, how's come the big wigs How's come the intellectuals didn't get it? Because it's spiritually discerned. One of the signs, brethren, that God's grace has come into our lives is that we begin to understand the things of God with a knowledge that enriches our lives and changes us. Look again, chapter 2, verse 9 and following. As it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him, but God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Simply put, it takes God to know God. It takes God to reveal God. Verse 11 and 12, for who among men Knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him. Not we're not mind readers, are we? We don't. We can't know what another person's thinking, but he knows what he's thinking. And now he, look how he applies this. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. You th- you think you know God? You think you can know God? No one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. Wow. Tremendous distinction is being made here. God gives us His Spirit and the Spirit knows God and the Spirit begins to reveal God to us. The starting place, in other words, is the starting place to know God is God Himself. But what is the starting point of the unbeliever? The Psalmist says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile, there is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand. Anyone out there who understands? Are there any who seek God? Psalm 14, verse 1 and 2. The answer is no. They say God is not. God does not exist. So knowledge. Corinthians were given knowledge. God revealed Himself to them through the gospel, as He does for everyone here that knows the Lord. What about our speech? That's the other side of the coin. How has the grace of God changed what we say and how we say it? God's grace sanctifies, may I say, it mellows our speech. It makes us less critical, less abrasive, less judgmental and vindictive, less accusatory, less know-it-all, though admittedly we're not stupid as we're learning because God gives us spiritual knowledge of His, Himself and His plan. But we don't flaunt what we know as though, you stupid. We don't approach people that way. We understand what Paul said to the Corinthians. What do you have that you didn't receive? Well, if you did receive it, then let's not get a swelled head. Let's not boast. You've just been a recipient of God's grace. What about speech? Well, in Colossians 4, verse 6, Paul writes, Let your conversation be always, listen to this, always full of grace. Season with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. Colossians 4, verse 6. Gracious speech always tastes Good. Kind words always swallow easily. Just think about that. Or, listen to Peter. He says, Whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. 1 Peter 3, verse 10. What are these men saying? They're saying that the grace of God that has come into their lives has not only increased their knowledge so that they know the things of God, the things that have been revealed, but it's changed their speech. It's changed the way they relate to other people. So my question is what about you? Have you noticed any difference in your speech since you profess faith? I'm not talking about profanity and obscenities, which most of us discard early on in our Christianity because such is so obviously anti-Christ and against His holiness. But what about gossip and backbiting? What about being mean-spirited in thought and word? What about telling people off or always trying to correct them or manipulate them? Doesn't that sound like people that's just like the world? Yeah, it is. This is like people from the world. And so if we're still talking that way, has grace come into your life? This is the test of your Christianity in mind. This is the proof of whether or not God's grace has touched our lives. We begin to realize the depth of our own sin, the inadequacy of our own self-righteousness, and our need for God's mercy and God's grace. And humility begins to set in preferring others over ourselves, begins to set in. We were talking about that in the adult class this morning. We become teachable, we become pliable, open to instruction from our church teachers, without envy, without jealousy. And if anything, we are reluctant to let our opinion be aired. We really guard our hearts in this matter. We don't feel like we have to correct everyone and make them conform to our view. This does not mean that we never give our opinion or voice our concerns, but it does mean that we speak the truth in love. And prior to such, we examine our motives to make sure that we're not just trying to force our views on others or to squeeze out from under the conviction of biblical truth if we're under conviction. You see, you can, you can get your way and lose the day ever think of that? The Corinthian believers benefited by the grace of God. They became wise in spiritual discernment and Christ-like in their speech. And for those reasons, Paul was deeply, deeply appreciative. Boy, that's a place to start with one another, isn't it? God's grace, yeah. I remember when so-and-so was such an antagonist against God. Now look at them. The grace of God has come into their lives. They wouldn't give the time of day to read and study the Bible. Now they're in the book all the time. And their speech, wow. Every other word was a curse word. Every other word was bordering on blasphemy. My, how they've mellowed, how they've changed. I'm so appreciative grace of God in so-and-so's life and that God has brought that person into my life. Secondly, Paul was appreciative. Here's your second point. He was appreciative of the Corinthian believers, verse 6, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Now at this juncture we're not told how the testimony about Christ was confirmed in them. But as we look in through the remainder of the book, it's evident that their lives were radically changed. We were talking in the adult class this morning about radical love, agape type of love, selfless love. They were radically changed. They were idolaters, as were all Greeks. God to them consisted of the fabrications of their own thoughts, or their own manual skills if they were silversmiths or artisans of some other craft. And if that were not bad enough, the idolatry, we also discover in this church some pretty horrific sins. Wow. Divisions, schisms, factions, chapter 1, 1 through 3. Imbibing the philosophy of the age, chapter 2. Incest among their own church families, chapter 5. Lawsuits against one another, chapter 6. Sexual immorality, chapter 6, the latter part of the chapter. Easy divorce, chapter 7. Any one of these sins could have brought this church down. And we might think, wow, whoa, Oh, there is so much sin here. No way! Are these people true believers who love God? But Paul says that his testimony about Jesus was confirmed in them. In other words, they were Christians. But they needed help to straighten things out in their lives. Yeah. They had been so much much a part of the pagan culture and thinking that it would take a while for the truths of the gospel to register and transform them into the character of Christ. This is the way it is with people saved out of raw paganism. The transformation from death to life is instantaneous. It's like throwing a light switch on. But for that new life or light to transform thinking and speech, that takes time. And it's the task of more mature believers to bear with such people and not expect a one-year-old in the faith to display the spiritual maturity of a believer who has been walking with the Lord for 30 years. I mean, have we really forgotten so quickly how many people had to put up with us in our immaturity and in our greed and in our bad tempers and our bad speech and our immoral actions? We were not instantly sanctified, though instantly justified. In his second letter, Paul explained, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and we make it obedient to Christ. 2 Corinthians, or second Corinthians rather, 10, verse 5. And verse 7, he says to the Corinthians, you, you are only looking on the surface of things. So that's what was going on you got to get past the surface issues. you got to get past the fluff and stuff. You've got to think about those thoughts that you're having. Think about those words you're using and make those things captive to Christ. You know, people can sometimes argue their position, though it's contrary to the teachings of the Bible. And what is more, they may challenge the word of God in such a way as to make it appear... That God's word is only one of many options open to them from which to choose. See, that's that invasion of the world. That's that still going on in our minds. But Paul says that we are not to tolerate this. Any well-argued position that contradicts God is bogus. It is a false knowledge. It's born of pride. And our task is to make sure our thoughts are obedient to Christ. What I want you to see is that we are to be hard on ourselves in these assessments. We must adopt for ourselves as well as for others, it's God's way or the highway. Even if it means that we must change our mind and change our direction. People are oblivious as to how much the culture shapes their thinking and viewpoints and orders their priorities. The world is never shy, when you think about it, the world is never shy about espousing its views on morality, economics, healthcare, government, child rearing, what's just, what's unjust, what's right, what's wrong. The world's always talking about these things. And if you don't make your thoughts obedient to Christ, guess what? They will not be obedient. There's Nothing automatic here. You'll be a Christian in name only, a pagan at heart with a religious veneer. How can you teach and how can you lead others if you are not where you need to be spiritually? Say, well, I'm not a teacher. Yeah, you are. We're all teachers because the world's watching you. Your family is watching you. Your relatives are watching you. So you're teaching. If you are mentoring another, they have a right to look at your life and read its message. I wonder if you could say with Paul, be followers of me as I am of Christ. There's the model. Well, the Corinthians evidence the grace of Christ in their lives by responding aright to the testimony Paul gave concerning Jesus. Their reception of Jesus did not immediately right all wrongs, but they entered the path of righteousness. And God's grace prospered their walk. Paul was extremely thankful for these things. And we should be thankful for these things too. Jesus put it this way. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. We're looking for the hundreds. And Jesus says be thankful for the one. Luke 15 verse 10. Be thankful for the one. Oh, the angels. The myriads of the heavenly hosts rejoice over one. That's how great a transformation grace is and how much is to be appreciated. Now that brings us to the second point in our outline, the results of God's grace on believers. What results does God's grace have on believers? Number one, verse seven, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. You do not lack any spiritual gift. Many of the gifts are listed for us in 1 Corinthians 12. Romans 12 would be another text. What we need to see in reference to today's study is that the Corinthian church did not lack any of these gifts. And with the exception of those specific sign gifts apportioned to the apostles, we don't lack any of them either. Every local church which is not a synagogue of Satan, some of them are, Revelation 2 verse 9, every local church, which is the true church of the gospel, is self-contained. Self-contained. From those who have the gift of teaching, to others who are good administrators, to those who are gifted with helping people in need, Whether an eye, a hand, a foot, or whatever, all the parts of the body are assembled in such a way that each church displays a whole body with Christ as the head. And I think this is just Paul's way of saying that we can function as Christ's church till He comes. We are not in a state of limbo or suspended animation awaiting the right person to come along before we can be a viable and functioning church. Now it's true that some preacher in another church may be more gifted than me and I'm sure of it. Or some administrator better than someone who sits on our board. This will always be the case. You and I will always find others More gifted. Even in the same gift that we might have. But it isn't your expertise or mind that makes us important to the Word of God. It's your faithfulness. It's your faithfulness. I've been in Christian organizations with very gifted people, but they were going nowhere because people were not faithful. They weren't faithful in the exercise of their gifts. They were sitting on their hands. Or as Jesus taught in the parable of the talents, they had buried their gift in the ground and were not using it. One talent or five, that's not the the issue. The point of order is how steady, how consistently are you using your skills for God? So brethren, we are a gifted church. Let us not be feeling sorry for ourselves because we don't garner the crowds. Let us not lament the fact that we don't have a gymnasium or a paved parking lot. And I'm not saying give up the dream. People of vision are needed to keep us focused on gospel outreach. But the point is that the Corinthians lost nothing as a result of coming to Christ, nor have we. We have gained, not lost. And he's thankful for that. It took them a while to get a full appreciation for all that God had done for them through the Apostle Paul and the ministry of the gospel. But they came to it. Secondly, they were assured, verse 8, God will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day. Of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 8. God will keep you strong. And just how will He do that? Look at verse 9. God, who has called us into His fellowship with His Son Jesus Christ, our Lord, is, what's the next word? Faithful. How's He going to do it? God is faithful. I want you to observe the parallelism here. In verse 7, we learn that the Corinthians did not lack any spiritual gift as they waited for the return of Jesus Christ. They just needed to get busy and become faithful with what God had given them. And now in verse 8, Paul says that God will keep them strong on the day of Jesus Christ. How? Because God is faithful to those that He has called into His family. God calls us to be faithful in our time in history. He has pledged himself to be faithful to us on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What day is that? That's judgment day. That's judgment day. Paul writing to the Romans says, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 2 verse 5. There's coming a day, a reckoning day. To the same church he wrote, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due to Him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. Corinthians need to hear that. and We need to hear that. Jesus put it this way. Moreover, the Father, God the Father, judges, listen, no one. No one? No one. The Father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. John 5 verse 22. And the next verse says, He does that so that men will honor the Son like they honor the Father. Think of this. The judge of Judgment Day is Jesus Christ. The one who had pledged Himself to be faithful to His people on that day. To the church at Philippi, Paul writes, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1 verses four through six. There's that faithfulness of God. This is not a statement of cooperative effort to get saved. It is a statement of mutual interaction as people already in fellowship with God and His Son to advance the cause of God in the gospel throughout the world. And that's what he means when he says, you've been partners with me in the gospel. We could say the same about the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church started out weak, but they ended up strong. They did. In the the beginning, their many sins were a drag upon them. Their growth in grace was halting and slow, maybe three steps back for every step they took forward. But it was steady, here a little, there a little. The Holy Spirit weaned them off the sin that enslaved them and set their feet more solidly upon the rock, Jesus Christ. And that's what God does for us as well. But their progress was not so much their perseverance, their faithfulness, as it was God's perseverance and faithfulness. Paul writing to the Thessalonian church says, May God Himself The God of peace sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. You see where his hope is. It's not in the Thessalonians themselves. He's not saying, I know you guys are going to just persevere. You're just going to get through all this on your own. You're such good Christians. No, he's saying, Jesus Christ is faithful and he will do it. The brother of Jesus, the half brother, Jude, writes in his one little, his one chapter book these words Jude a servant of jesus christ and a brother of james to those who have been called who are loved by god the father and kept by jesus christ Whew. verse 1 of that little book kept by jesus christ been over 2000 years since the corinthian church came to be They waited patiently for the return of Jesus, but death overtook them all. No matter. They were still kept by Jesus and loved by the Father. They could say with the psalmist, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23, verse 4 through 6. We love that psalm. You know, that's a psalm about the keeping power of our God. I'm going to die, but I'm not going to be afraid of it, because you are with me. It's a glorious, <laughs> a glorious, glorious prospect. Far better... Than the charge to the unbelieving. Here's the charge to them. Just as a man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Hebrews 9 verse 27. John describes the reaction of the unbelieving at Jesus appearing. They called on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Revelation 6 verse 16. Oh, but if you know the judge, more, if the judge is the one who took your guilt upon himself and paid the full penalty of the law against your sin, the principle of double jeopardy kicks in. That is to say, you can't be charged twice, once in your substitute and again by yourself. It kicks in and we are told, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians 5, verse 9. There's the unbelieving. There's those that hate God and that was us too. But then God invaded our life through Jesus Christ and by His Spirit. and We were transformed out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and it hasn't been the same since. Praise the Lord. Paul says there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Something's happened and something's changed. Again, the scripture writes, this is love. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And sent His Son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 1 John 4, verse 10 and 11. This is the joy of the Christian community. We are saved in individually, that is true, but we are drawn together collectively by the saving grace of God. And our history as a church will never make it into the annals of Holy Scripture like that of the Corinthian brethren. But I hope our legacy will be as spiritually beneficial to the people of our generation, to our children and to our grandchildren. In all likelihood, we will not be here when Jesus comes in all His glory. But if we have been strong in the Lord and faithful, our testimony will be here. People driving by the little white building on Dryden Road will be able to say, you know, the people of that church, they had their problems, but one thing is certain, they knew God. And more importantly, God knew them. This is no small thing in a day when churches are leaving the faith and opting for a feel-good gospel, which is no good news at all. I want a better legacy for us. Such a legacy does not come automatically. It comes from hard, work on the part of faithfulness in the small things, consistency, dedication, without becoming weary in doing good. What a joy to be able to work together for the glory of the one who gave of himself that we might become his children. And by the way, this society is not prejudicial. It is not exclusive. It is for all who call upon the Lord to be saved. And if you read in Galatians, we are a mix of Jew and Gentile, Scythian, Barbarian, Pagan, religiously taught, churched, unchurched, however you want to say it. That's what we are. The call of the gospel is this today. Today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. You know what, it is, what a privilege it is just to come under conviction. Think about that. It's a privilege because God Himself says, my spirit will not always mess around with you, not always strive with you, not always convict you. The day may come when my spirit My spirit says, okay. You wanted me hands off? You got it. Hands off. Go your way. Go to hell. Go the way of your sin. To be convicted, to be disturbed. That's a blessing. You need to be thankful for that. That's the grace of God working in your life. You need to perk up and listen. And you need to respond. And the response is to repent. That is to turn away from your sin and to plead with Christ to apply His shed blood and broken body for you as a substitute. Lord, send Thy Spirit upon us this morning break our stubborn hearts you did that with the Corinthians they were such a prideful lot and we see it in some of the later chapters here where they went toe to toe with the Apostle Paul and they began to demean him and to think that they were as smart as him and as gifted and all of those various things it was just pride but Lord you brought them through all of that you helped them to see that they hadn't had, and they didn't possess anything that they had not received. Not a thing. That's true of all of us. Is there something good about us? Then we received it. Do we know some things about God? Then we received it. Can we speak a word for God in a kind and gracious way? Well, then that speech came by grace seasoned with salt. Nothing we are, nothing we do if it's worthy of anything, is of our own doing, but it's all of your grace. Forgive us our arrogance. Forgive us our pride. forgive Forgive us our stubbornness and our reluctance to repent because we love our sin. We don't want to give it up and we know we must give it up if we come to Christ. He didn't die so we can continue to sin. He died to emancipate us, to free us from that. But somehow we think of that freedom as being slavery. The evil one has so convinced us. Honor the Lord Jesus Christ, lift him up this day. Save whom you will, Lord, draw us into the community of the church family. And Lord, for us that know the Lord, may we begin to seriously appreciate the joy of Christian community. We're learning in the adult class how the rubber meets the road in some of these details. Christ's name, we give you glory. Amen. Seven hundred